Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Simon Cooper, the author of the new book, The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi in the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. We've had some great guests lately, including Leander Sharlockens, Chris Russell, and Celine Gounder and Robbie Sicca. So check those out. Now, here's my interview with Simon Cooper. Our guest now is one of my favorite writers of all time. Simon Cooper is a columnist for the Financial Times, and he's written some classic books, including Football Against the Enemy and Soccernomics with Stefan Shemansky. His new book is absolutely terrific. I've read it. It's called The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi, and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. Simon, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So lots to talk about here. First off, congrats on the amazing timing of your book, which comes out right as Lionel Messi is leaving Barcelona after spending his entire career there. Uh, I don't know how many of our listeners know much about the book business, but there's a pretty big lag time between when a book is done and when it comes out. And there are very few books that have had this much of a news hook uh, with Messi leaving right as it's coming out. Were you at all surprised when the news came that Barcelona couldn't keep Lionel Messi? Yeah, it was August 5th. It was a very weird day because that morning, the Financial Times, my newspaper, published the first extract of my book. So that's really the moment the book is launched onto an unsuspecting world. And that morning, both Messi and I expected that he would be staying at Barcelona, that he'd be signing this new contract at 50% of his previous pay. And to the surprise of us both, separately, that afternoon, Barcelona says, Leo, we can't offer you any new contract. Sorry, you've got to go. So that's when the world goes wild. And uh, yes, it did help the publicity for my book. Thank you very much, Leo Messi. <laughs> so how did this book come about in the first place? You've had a long history of a connection to FC Barcelona. Yeah, I mean, when I was 12 years old in 1981, Johan Cruyff, the great Dutchman, returns to Holland and I become a kind of follower of his, like everyone who loves football in Holland. And he explains football to us, how it works through these constant interviews. He's always on TV explaining. And Kreuf is really the guy who invented modern soccer. He, the soccer played today by Bayern Munich, City, Liverpool, Italy, playing on the other team's half, constant pressing, fast passing. That's Kreufian football. So he was this genius, not just as a player, but as a thinker. And then he becomes the uh, coach of Barcelona later, having played there. And so like everyone who grew up in Holland loving football, I saw Barcelona as another Dutch club, but one that played in Catalonia. Always loved it. Uh, first walked through the doors there in 1992, uh, made many subsequent visits. And I realized over time that the people at the club had started to regard me as a sort of club member, as an alum. And, you know, they opened all their doors to me. And in 2019, I was there reporting an article for the Financial Times. And they, I thought, wow, you know, anyone I ask to speak to, they're letting me speak to. I thought there's more than a book here. Because as you know, in soccer, in European soccer, access is a huge problem. You know, they give you this canned access where you sit in the press conference, listening to the manager tell self-justifying lies about why they lost or listening to the players say sweet nothings. Uh, yeah, we played well, but Saturday's another game. And I got totally fed up with that. And I thought, wow, the biggest club in the world and I'm getting access. So I wrote to my contacts there and I said, what if I wrote a book? Would you keep opening doors? And they said, yeah, sure, no problem. And they never once, to their enormous credit, asked to pre-read anything or censor anything. 
they only got the book the same time as as journalists like you got it just before it came out and um they i've got, had a couple of very sweet notes from people people inside barcelona so thank you guys for letting me do this and for letting me write a, a very critical book in parts about the club yeah i mean like it's your you're very straight up in in what there is to to laud what there is to criticize about the club and you know you had very good access but you also used it really well i what what did you learn what were some of the things that you learned that maybe were even a surprise to you about this club well i learned a lot that was surprising partly because i spoke to people that don't ordinarily get spoken to by journalists so i did speak to players i did speak to managers and club presidents but i also spoke to psychologists nutritionists doctors assistant coaches marketing execs social media people so i got this i tried to get this picture of the club as a workplace how it works every day and one thing i discovered is barcelona is really a very small club it's a very local club it's the biggest sports club in the world in terms of social media followers and briefly in terms of revenues but it's really run by a bunch of people who were born in the city and expect to spend their whole lives in the city and never leave it and so they know each other intimately and extremely well they're very close they fall out they fight they have petty rivalries i mean you see that now in president juan laporta and ex-president uh jorge bartomeo having a big fight i mean these guys have known each other for decades and people's parents knew each other so it's really quite a small community and even the 150,000 members it's very catalan it's very local and I think that's also why the Youth Academy was so important, because unlike, say, English clubs, Barcelona has always been run by people who expect still to be there in 15 years' time when the kids come out of the academy. So some of our listeners are obviously going to know the, a lot about the connection between FC Barcelona, the club, and Catalonia, where Barcelona is located. Um, some of our listeners won't. Can you sort of explain a little bit to those folks about the relationship that is sort of special between the club and the region? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of myths about Catalonia and Barça, and there's a lot of truth in it as well. So Catalonia is a region in Spain that doesn't have its own state. And now about half the population thinks it should be, become independent of Spain and have its own state. So that's a very tense issue in the region, almost like the way Trump divided Americans 50-50, Catalan independence is dividing them 50-50. But Barcelona, the football club, has always been the kind of symbol of Catalonia. If you don't have a state, if you don't have an army, you don't have a government, well, your football team represents you. And so Barça is being described as the unarmed army of Catalonia. And under the, the dictatorship of General Franco, which lasted until 1975, it was towards the end the only place where you could speak Catalan in public. They would make announcements on the speaker in Catalan. And so it's just got this enormous emotional importance to Catalans, which is why I think a club from a relatively small town in a not very rich European country could grow into the biggest sports club on earth for a time. You know, it, I mean, it's social. I say biggest sports club on earth. Just think its social media following is bigger than of all NFL teams combined. <laughs> and that's because, you know, the local elite pours so much, has poured so much energy and money into this football club because it means something more than football. I mean, one thing that's sort of confounding is you look at the amazing debt numbers with Barcelona right now, over a billion dollars in debt. I guess one question is, how did a club like Barcelona become such a revenue generating machine in the first place? And then how did it get a billion dollars in debt? Well, it becomes a revenue generating machine because 
Crouch refounds the Youth Academy in the late 80s, and he says, look, we don't care if you're big or small. We don't really care if you're fast or slow. What we care about is can you pass? Do you understand space on the field? And often the small players, like Crouch himself, when he was a kid, understood space best and were best passers. Because if you're small, you've got to get rid of the ball quickly before the big guy mows you down. And so other clubs might really have rejected Xavi, Andres Iniesta as being too small. Even Barca at some point had doubts about them. Other clubs might not have said to a 13-year-old Argentinian kid who was the size of a nine-year-old, we will pay for your entire family to move to Barcelona, as they did with the Messi family 20 years ago, and we'll pay for your growth hormone treatments. You know, they might not have taken a gamble on such a tiny kid. But at Barca, it didn't matter how small you were. And so they have this incredible generation, the best generation that will ever come out of any youth academy in any club. It will never be repeated that emerges in the late 90s, early 2000s with Messi plus seven of the Spaniards who go on to win the World Cup in 2010. And so you have this team that's assembled more or less for free. It wins everything in football. They win four Champions Leagues in a decade. And of course, the money streams in, you know, because you have uh, full stadiums, you have tourists coming to buy seats at inflated prices, your TV rights, your sponsorship goes through the roof. So by 20. 18, they're the first sports club in history of any sport to surpass a billion dollars a year in revenues. So all this money comes in. And of course, when you're number one and the money's coming in, A, you get lazy. You know, remember the ad slogan, we're number two, we try harder. So Barcelona got lazy. They stopped thinking. They stopped learning from other clubs. Their football stopped evolving. And the other thing is money comes in, you spend it more easily. So Jorge Messi, Leo's dad, kept going to the club and saying, my son has a rolling contract. He can leave any summer. If you don't give him more money, he might leave next summer. So they keep upping his pay. So in the end, he's getting something like $150 million a year, about three times any other soccer player in the world. And then you pay too much for transfers because every selling club knows this club has very full pockets. And so you blow, they blew over $1.2 billion on transfers in the five years from 2014, mostly on players who, as you know, didn't perform. Wow. It's, it's still incredible. I mean, even this week, Laporta, the, the president, had a press conference where he talked about how much in debt the club is right now. And, and one reaction I had coming out of that was, based on what Laporta is saying this week, why was he even telling Messi at any point this summer that he could stay? Laporta is a good news guy. He's got a nice smile. He's a charismatic optimist and he's not psychologically equipped to give the bad news. And also, frankly, he lied in his campaign. When he was campaigning for president, remember Barcelona members elect their president. When he's campaigning for president early this year, he said, oh, if I'm president, Messi likes me. We'll have an asado, an Argentinian barbecue together and he'll sign on. And Laporta must have understood this is just not possible. There is no more money. The, the, the treasury is empty. But this is what he told the fans, what he was telling Messi, until suddenly on August 5th, he tells the truth. And he says, look, we don't have a cent. You've got to go. So, uh, yeah, he strung everyone along. And the former president, Bartomeu, where does he fit right now? Is he just a total object of hatred for Barcelona fans? Is he still like... <laughs> walking around the streets of, of the city of Barcelona? I feel really bad for Bartomeu because he was the guy who okayed the decision <laughs> to let me write this book and that they would open all the doors. He was incredibly nice to me. He's a very nice, kind man who should never have been the president of a sports club. He had no <laughs> qualifications. He's a typical member of the Catalan elite. You know, they have a family company. They make the jet bridges that you walk through from the plane to the terminal. And he gets onto the Barca board and then 
Sandro resigns in scandal and suddenly Bartomeu is president. No idea how to to deal with football agents, how to deal with footballers. So, yeah, he's very much hated and a a figure of derision now. And I have to say rightly so, because it was in his watch that Messi's salary trebled in five years, which is astonishing. And on his watch that they spent those $1.2 billion on transfers, buying players like Griezmann, Dembele, Coutinho for massively inflated fees and then some really even more absurd transfers of people who had no business walking into the company in the first place. So yeah, poor Bartomeu, he got it completely wrong. And where does all this fit what's happening with the club right now and the Super League and what are sort of the remnants of the Super League? Because we still see Real Madrid and Juventus and to some extent Barcelona talking about the Super League as if it might still be able to happen, even though it certainly seems like from an England perspective, that seems just very unlikely. Yeah, I mean, the Super League is not going to happen. What I think what, what hap- what's happening is the egos of Andrea Agnelli, of Juve, and of Florentino Perez, of Real Madrid, who are really the two biggest forces behind it, are so invested in the Super League. They were so humiliated by the two-day implosion that they're saying, no, no, it's fine, we're going to push ahead which they must know is false. And Barcelona are kind of the victims. So when the Super League idea comes along, Florentino says to Bartomeu, look, you guys have got no money. You're completely broke. If you sign on for the Super League, you get 300 million euros right away, something like that. And imagine what you could do with 300 million euros. You could give Leo a new contract and you could hold this team together a little bit. You might be able to buy one or two players who are not over 32, which would be a massive revolution for Barca. And so it was just this pot of gold. It was the only pot of gold they had left. And that's why Bartomeu said, we're going to do the Super League and why Barca have still not fully managed to distance themselves from this project that is dead. And if it is dead, what does Barcelona do from here on to try and, and fix the mess? Is, is, is the messy decision the first part of that? Yeah, you go into austerity. You get rid of all your expensive players. You don't buy anyone. And then inevitably you get worse. I mean, in a year or two, the Pique, Busquets, Jordi Alba generation uh, will have aged out and you won't be paying them. They're massively inflated salaries anymore, although Pique did take a big pay cut. You may have to lose a, your last remaining crown jewels, you know, younger players who bigger clubs want, because we can talk of bigger clubs now, players like Frankie de Jong and Bailey. And essentially, you're not going to compete. I mean, one very senior official told me, he said, we just have to accept we're not going to win the Champions League anymore for a while. We're not going to win the Spanish League. And that's just a message they can't pass to their fans. You cannot tell Barcelona fans that, but that is the reality, I believe. It's fascinating to me because we've just seen ESPN, Disney spend over a billion dollars for the next eight years of La Liga in the United States. So they've invested heavily. The first game they broadcast on ABC network television from Barcelona last week. What do you think is going through ESPN's mind about all of this turmoil at Barcelona? Um, Well, look, I mean, paying inflated sums for TV rights is nothing new. But I think one plausible scenario for La Liga is it goes the way of Serie A. So you remain, you know, one of the major leagues, but very much behind the English and possibly on a par with the Germans and the Italians. 
And even, you know, Paris Saint-Germain, the French league is not going to creep up as a whole, but Paris Saint-Germain might become a bigger club than Barcelona-Real for the ne- Real Madrid for the next few years. So, you know, nothing is forever. And you see on the, in a geeky way, I've been watching the UEFA coefficients table, which rewards clubs from each country for how well they do in European competitions. The last year or so, England has overtaken Spain, I think for the first time in nearly a decade. So the English league, judging by its European performances, is now significantly stronger than La Liga. And I think that's the trend for the next while. I don't see uh, the Spanish clubs recovering their former preeminence. Remember, it was a one-off. They had Ronaldo and Messi and then the best generation of Spanish football as ever, the 2008-12 generation. All that's now gone. The summer of soccer continues on Paramount+. Plus. Stream over 2,000 soccer matches a year from around the world. That's all the heart-pounding drama from CBS Sports, including UEFA Champions League, Europa League, Italy's Serie A, Argentina's Primera División, the Brasileirao, the NWSL, the Asian Football Confederation, and the CONCACAF qualifiers, featuring the stars from the U.S. and Mexican men's national teams. Plus, much more. It's the best of the beautiful game, with all the beautiful names, like Messi, Mbappe, Ronaldo, Rapino, and Pulisic. Be part of the excitement as champions are crowned and history is made. The world's game lives here on Paramount+. Plus. Visit ParamountPlus.com to start your free trial and stream every match live. La Masia has been the development academy that has had so much success at Barcelona, producing the generation you talked about earlier. And maybe we were spoiled by that and how great and unique it was. But I'm still surprised that La Masia is not producing a bit more talent, even if it wasn't on in recent years, even if it wasn't on the level of the Messi generation. Like, what, what has happened there? And is, it, is La Masia capable of, of getting back not all the way, but at least part of the way when it comes to developing talent? I'm skeptical. I mean, you're right. The last great player to come out of La Masia, the two are Busquets and then Pedro in 2008. Remember that Pedro is not from La Masia. They bought him from the Canary, a Canary Island club last year. So the Masia has not produced a world-class player in 13 years. What went wrong? I mean... I was speaking to Masia youth coaches who are very disaffected. They say, look, even when we produce a good player, he doesn't get the chance to fail in the first team. He doesn't get near the first team. I mean, if you look at the last decade, who have they produced who made it elsewhere? There's not many. There's Thiago Alcantara, Hector Bellerin at Arsenal. There's uh, Andre Onana, the Ajax keeper, might be going to Inter Milan. There's three good players. But there isn't that much else. I mean, I think that what happened is everyone became La Masia. Every academy at any serious club and every football association copied La Masia, which says the way to produce young players is uh, it's about passing. That's how you select. We ignore heights as a factor. So French academies rejected players like Griezmann and Van Ribéry because they were too small. That would never happen now. Now, France, even England, Germany produce little players who can pass. So when everyone copies you and every you know big coach like Hans-Dieter Flick came to visit the Masia in early, much earlier in his career. Every big coach has come to study what you're doing. You lose your advantage. And Barcelona never visited anywhere. They never went to learn from other clubs because they thought, well, we're number one, we're preeminent. So, you know, the whole 
of Europe is La Masia now. And so then La Masia can't really mean as much. So I hear from Barca fans, oh, we should just go back to La Masia and then they'll produce another golden generation. It ain't going to happen. You are never, ever going to produce that generation of players again. Wow. What's the response been like from people inside the club at Barcelona to your book? Very generous. I mean, I think that what they really worry about, what keeps them awake at night, is what the Catalan media writes, because these are people who've lived their whole lives in Barcelona, who are never going to leave. I mean, think of people like La Perta and Bartomeu. And they are really upset by a headline on the internet site in Catalan of Sport or Mundo Deportivo or Periodico. And um, they care what their friends in town, what their children, what the waiters at their restaurants, what their business partners think. They don't really care what some guy in Britain writing books that are appearing in foreign languages thinks. They, they, they've been very kind to me. I got a lovely email from a guy at the press office saying, I've received your book, I haven't read it yet, but I'm so happy that you did this. Many congratulations on the project. And I wrote back to him, I said, you're a gentleman, you know. Uh, and that is my feeling about the club. They are so decent and polite to me. And I always think if you're decent and polite to journalists, you're probably decent and polite to everybody. That's the experience I've always had when I've gone to FC Barcelona, just yeah. uh, very classy organization um, in terms of how they've, they've dealt with me over the years. Uh, Simon Cooper, we have a few more questions with. Really appreciate you taking the time. The book is called The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. Um, now, you have lived in Paris for, for many years now, and you're telling me before we started recording, you're about to spend a year living in Madrid. Um, I, I am curious, what has the response been in Paris to Lionel Messi joining PSG? And people are totally ecstatic. I mean, it's like the world's best baseball player joining a AAA team. You know, the, <laughs> uh, the, I mean, Paris Saint-Germain are a big club now. But the French league is, you know, it's 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 Topeka. It's 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 nowhere, and suddenly you have in the French league an attack of Messi and Mbappe, Neymar. Nobody would ever believe that. So the whole city's going crazy. I mean, one of my sons, my sons, both massive PSG fans, like every kid they know, uh, desperately trying to buy the Messi Thussy shirts. Um, this is the biggest thing that's happened in the history of Parisian sport. I mean, this is the biggest city in Western Europe, 12 and a half million people, and it's never won the Champions League. And so there's an enormous amount of pent up hope. And, you know, this idea that it's some club that was suddenly founded a decade ago by Qataris with no local base is totally false. There are millions of Parisians who are completely mad about Paris Saint-Germain. It's as big there as the Yankees are in New York City. I'm obviously excited to, to see Messi's debut. It's, uh, it's going to be very strange seeing him wearing a PSG shirt. It already has been and a lot of the stuff he's been doing. Um, I want to step back just a little bit. Uh, you were incredibly young when you wrote your first book, Football Against the Enemy. And, I, and I'm wondering, how old were you? And what was that process like for you in putting that book together? Well, I was 22. I just graduated from university when I began writing Soccer Against the Enemy. And I found this British publisher crazy enough to give me an advance, which is just enough to go around the world on a ruck, with a rucksack. Uh, sleeping on trains, sleeping in youth hostels. And I'd arrive in some city where I didn't speak the language or barely spoke the language like Buenos Aires or Tallinn, Estonia. And I might have a couple of phone numbers scrawled on a piece of paper that I'd got from a friend of a friend. And I'd call and try and say in Spanish, you know, does Mr. Sanchez live here? And the answer would be no, he died 
10 years ago or <laughs> never heard of him. And I got really, you know, I got really brave as you have to be when you, you know, this is before the internet, very hard to get hold of people. And I just walk into clubs like Barcelona or Dynamo Kiev with my torn jacket and, you know, uh, clothes hadn't been washed in days and say, yeah, I'd like to interview Johan Cruyff, I said when I walked into Barcelona. And they didn't give me Cruyff, they gave me his assistant, which is still a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Uh, it's in the intro of my book. But yeah, I just, I just get, became, for the first and only time in my life, really good at going up to people and saying hi and um, telling my story. <laughs> Desperate for interviews. I should say for listeners, read the book. In, in the US, it's Soccer Against the Enemy, right, is the title? Yeah, yeah. That book won awards. It launched you into your career in, in a major way. I mean, when you have so much success so early in your career, how does that impact what you do in your career after that? And obviously, you've written about much more than just soccer over the years. Yeah, I mean... I then joined the Financial Times where nobody cared that I'd written this book. So I was kind of the most junior employee on the lowest salary. So that was, um, I had these two kind of double lives that I write the currency column at the Financial Times, age 26 for a very low salary. And then I'd suddenly be at some, doing some glamorous football interview or writing a soccer freelance piece in Germany or something. So I had these double lives, which is very exhausting. But I mean, it was a great way to launch my career because a book, you know, as you know, it gives you a sort of brand and people know you. They don't just think, oh, I read a piece in the FT or I read a piece in Sports Illustrated. They think I, re I read a book by him. I know his name. And so it's a very useful way to start. And it also, writing a book teaches you how to write books. So I didn't had no idea how to write a book when I started Football Against Money Enemy. By the end, I was getting a dim sense. And writing this Barcelona book, you know, 30 years on, you benefit from all the knowledge and the contacts that you acquired in the past. And when you get older, you fall asleep after lunch and you don't have the kind of drive and energy to, like I took a bus, three buses across Buenos Aires once to pursue this hopeless interview. I wouldn't do that now. But <laughs> so you gain some things as you get older as a journalist and you lose some things. So you've been living in Paris with your family, including your wife, Pamela Druckerman, who herself is a accomplished author, uh, New York Times columnist. And a while back, you both launched something called Pandemonium U. Could you explain what Pand Pandemonium U is to our listeners? Yeah, I'm very grateful you asked that because it's, it's, a, it's a kind of big passion that we poured into it. When the pandemic started and everyone was at home and suddenly you are starting to communicate much more through Zoom and so on. We started this site, uh, this kind of homeschool university called Pandemonium U, where we thought, well, we know a lot of people who've written books and especially about France, because we've lived in France nearly 20 years. And so anyone can join our classes and we'll have, let's say, Bill Buford talking about the history of French cooking or Margaret Macmillan talking about the Versailles Treaty of 1919. We had one soccer one, which to me was, I was very excited and proud that I put that together. It's Vladimir Boban, the great Croatian footballer, Branko Milanovic, the great Serbian-American economist, talking about football and the collapse of Yugoslavia together. And it was a beautiful conversation. So Pamela moderates some, I moderate others. Um, everyone is welcome. We get loads of Alliance Francaise people and other people. And, um, you know, it's just been a great way to learn ourselves. I mean, every time you're preparing a panel like that, suddenly you learn about some aspect of Vichy France or 19th century France or cooking that you'd never thought of before. I've seen a few of them. I really enjoy it. 
I mean, even like these podcast interviews during this pandemic over the last year and a half have saved me. I mean, just the ability to have interactions with people at a time when it's been harder to to have interactions with people is just so important. Um, you have spent a fair amount of time in the United States over the years. What's your sense at this point of soccer in the United States and what the sport has become here? I mean, I've always thought that soccer is very successful in the United States. The MLS is not successful, not very, but soccer in the US takes so many forms. I mean, you have all these ethnic leagues, you have a huge amount of interest in Mexican soccer, in European soccer, in Argentinian soccer. I mean, there's an, it's, the US soccer scene is, is this mosaic composed of all these different things. You have the best women's soccer scene in the world. And, you know, a lot of, there's, a lot, there's, you have one brilliant national team, the women, and one moderate national team, the men. And so I feel that the angst that I often hear in the US about the MLS isn't great, the men's national team is not so great. If you put it all together, I mean, there's not many countries with as vibrant a soccer scene. I remember I went to New York just before the World Cup 2010, I think it was, and there was way more uh, excitement and signs outside bars, watch games here in New York than there were in Paris. In, in some ways, New York is as big a soccer city as most in Europe. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of been my experience too. But like, the, like you say, the fragmentation of soccer in the United States is significant, you know, and the, the events that get all of the eyeballs like the World Cup, like the Euros this past summer in the Copa America to a lesser extent, you know, they, they get a lot of people watching. Like, I feel like soccer, people always ask me, like, when's soccer going to make it? And I think it's pretty easy to make the argument that soccer has made it in the soccer United made States. It, yeah. The MLS hasn't quite made it, but soccer has. Yeah. And a question I get a lot is, do I think the U.S. men will win a World Cup in our lifetime? What do you think? Well, in Soconomics, we were a bit over bold. <laughs> we said in the first edition of Soconomics more than a decade ago that we thought the Americans and Japanese, etc., would catch up and learn from the Europeans because we thought, look, these are big, wealthy countries. A lot of people play soccer. All they need is to understand the game a bit better. Just copy Barcelona, essentially, and you'll get there. But that turns out to be much harder than we thought. It turns out the Europeans are best at learning from each other. They're so close to each other. They play each other all the time. Their best players and coaches are traveling and swapping ideas. And so the rest of the world has really been left behind by the Western Europeans in men's soccer, but also in women's soccer, with the exception, well, actually, you got the US and Canada, and then you got a lot of Western European women's teams. But in men's soccer, it's much more pronounced. You have essentially, the last four World Cups were won by Western European teams. Only one team from outside Western Europe has made the top three in a World Cup since 2006, Messi's Barcelona, Messi's Argentina in 2014. So the rest of the world turns out to be at a massive, massive distance from Western Europe, because soccer here improves by the week. And I don't think it's improving by the week in the US or anywhere else. I think that's going to be a big topic heading into the next year's World Cup is has even Brazil and Argentina fallen away from the, the Western European teams to the point where, you know, hasn't been since what, 2002 that Brazil won a World Cup. And I still have Brazilians though. And this is where it gets interesting, right? Because I think Brazil is the number two ranked team in the FIFA rankings for what that's worth right now. And at least until the Copa America final, Brazil had been dominating in South America for the last four or five years. So I, I, I'm very curious to see how Brazil does at this next World Cup. Yeah, my question is, have they learned? 
And my sense is that they haven't. And my indicator would be that they are reluctant to appoint a Western European coach and say, to admit to their backwardness of their football and to say, look, we play this slow game. It's way too dribbles based. We don't play nearly the passing pace of the Europeans. Um, We need to do what England is sort of doing now and say, we admit defeat. And it's easier for England because England has won almost nothing to say, we're just going to copy the Europeans. Brazil needs to do that, but I think there's too much pride and this kind of nostalgia for 1970. You can't play the football of 1970 now. You can't even play the football of 2019 now because football just moves on so quickly. So I hear our Brazilian listeners gnashing their teeth right now as Simon has just called their football backward, which is uh, provocative, my friend. I like this. Um, I I guess my question with with Brazil, one question, I guess, would be, there's this whole thing saying no World Cup winning team, men's or women's actually, has ever been coached by a coach not from that country. Um, you, you think Brazil needs a non-Brazilian coach? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a statistical artifact because the big countries are the ones that win World Cups and big countries almost always appoint uh, somebody from their own country as coach. It's only outsiders, uh, sort of no-hopers like Qatar or South Africa, say, that appoint foreign coaches. So, of course, the winning coach is almost always from a country. It was almost different in 1978 when Ernst Toppel, the Austrian, took Holland to extra time in the World Cup finals. Uh, final, which is something I remember very clearly as an eight-year-old. But, yeah, Brazil needs to do that. And Brazil also needs to say much more broadly, we've lost it. We, you know, still have strength in our football and we still produce some world-class players. But... We need to Germanize, Frenchify our football. Just about to wrap up here with Simon Cooper. This has been a blast. And, and just this conversation we've had a second ago, like makes me, we could be talking here for three hours and I would love it. Um, you're moving to Madrid soon here with your family. Why? Yeah, I, it was an idea we had during the pandemic. We all wanted something new uh, to improve, in my case, very basic Spanish uh, to give the kids an experience of speaking Spanish in this whole other world and culture. They've lived their whole lives in Paris. And uh, frankly, to sit in the sun and eat tapas. Um, so I'm very excited about it. We've been in Spain now for about 10 days. And um, uh, being in Spain has always made me happy. It's one of those countries where if you don't have to work in the local economy, if you don't have to depend on the Spanish economy. It's the best place in the world to live. Well, I can't wait to visit you in Madrid and, and check out the scene Please. there, hopefully sooner rather than later. Simon Cooper is the author of the terrific new book, The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. Simon, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Simon Cooper as well as producer Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.